This is uh, Kurt Wimmer, the uh, direttore scrittore of the film. And uh, this is Lucas Foster, the lowly, lowly producer. <laughs> That's funny. You didn't act lowly. Yeah. It's not as lowly as I thought you should have. <laughs> so I, I actually made the, a decision to put the credits at the end of the film, which is not all that novel, but the reason being that if I put them in the front of the film, I, I would have had to pay for a, you know, a snazzy-looking credit sequence, and you didn't have the money. Broke out. We struggled uh, a lot, right, with these, trying to find the right images. Abs for, uh, absolutely. Really for just the right tone. At one time I had, you know, a lot of uh, war footage with uh, a voiceover, uh, Sean Pertwee's voiceover. Um, and it just didn't quite work. I ended up settling on this because I, the things I thought were important were to establish the tone that this was a science fiction film and to establish right here the Grammaton cleric. I thought it was important to run that uh, concept, that sort of Jedi Knight concept throughout the film and prepare the audience for it. So task it is to seek out and eradicate. Actually, the uh, the name, the, the, the Grammaton cleric, that was something that came very early on in the in the development process of the script and, and really stuck in the movie. You know, things sometimes change, but we hung on to that all the way through. Yeah, it's funny. If you remember the very first um, uh, first version of the script, they were called the Double E. Yeah. And, uh, and I changed it uh, and when I, I named the... Um, the government, the Tetragrammaton, uh, which is after the uh, unspeakable Hebrew word of God, which then became Yahweh, which then became Jehovah. And in any case, Grammaton in and of itself doesn't make sense, except that it's a shortening of um, Tetragrammaton, but Grammaton cleric, it has a, uh, a noble sound and a cool sound to it. So. This um, action sequence was done in uh, East, what is, you know, East Germany. That's um, right. Quite deep into East Germany, actually, and what was like a, uh, some kind of a, a manufacturing facility, right? No, no, it was barracks for the uh, East German soldiers. And, uh, you know, it's fascinating to go into East Germany, what's, it's not East Germany anymore, obviously, but uh, you really see the effects of communism, and uh, this is what places look like there. Uh, they were run down like this before the wall came down, and then, of course, afterwards, there you know, weren't the funds to address them. I think they were in the process, they were going to tear this down. Um, it'll all be built up beautifully again someday. I, I promise you, the land's way too valuable. But uh, it, it's amazing, all of the uh, uh, decimated places that we saw there. This Steadicam shot... Uh, Took a long, 30, took a long time to get this right, as I recall. 36, 36 takes, and I'm, I'm not quite sure why. <laughs> at the end of the day, it uh, should have been. And we did a lot of takes on this shot too. It, and that was a luxury, by the way, that we didn't have on this film very much. I mean, that was certainly the rare exception. Um, most, you know, mostly we did, you know, four or five takes. Um, and it depended sometimes on the actors, but um, you know, Christian. Uh, it was interesting in that his performance literally would not vary from take to take. They were almost carbon copies of each other. Angus would start out sort of um, very broad, and then around the fourth take he would get quiet, and that's when he would nail it. Uh, Emily, interestingly enough, she would get better with every take, so I would you know, end up doing 14 or 15 takes with her if, if we had the time, because she would just get better every time. 
Uh, I had some fears about leaving this much black in the movie. Um, Kurt was really pretty brave, I think, to to try this. It was always it always went to black, but it didn't really linger to the degree that it it does in the final cut of the movie. And it's, it's pretty interesting the, the reaction that audiences have to that. It really makes them uncomfortable for a minute, and then they they sort of love it after that. It does. You know, I mentioned this on the other track, that they're not accustomed to black leader in film, and they think that something happened to their projection. On DVD, it's going to have a different impact because they're going to know it's working. But the interesting thing is, is that the black sucks you into the screen in a way that almost no image can. It's like falling into a bottomless hole. And then, you know, when that person, which is me, says, listen, you really listen because there's nothing else to do. And I, I personally, I always, even though I've seen it a million times, I fall my, find myself falling into the screen. And when the gunshot goes off, I think it's just one beat past when you think it should, kind of like, you know, in Jaws, when the body leaps out. Uh, and it always startles me. By the way, in this sequence, um, we had some trouble, some R&D trouble, sort of lighting the lighting it if you will with uh, the original concept was to light it with the muzzle flashes um, and we had a little bit of trouble working it out because we were kind of doing it on the fly um, but we did actually eventually work out a methodology where we could see enough to matter and we helped it in post-production with a little bit of visual effect work yeah you know I the uh, I have to say uh, the camera department did a wonderful job on this film but they actually sort of dropped the ball on that particular scene I think they sort of underestimated uh, what they would need to do and and um, I'd actually mentioned the solution not that I really know anything about camera to brag about but I'd actually mentioned the solution which is the Photolux um, sync strobe which would have had to come from uh, London which I ultimately did use um, to shoot the guys who were who are getting shot the problem is, is that the gunshots, uh, they get swallowed up um, by the uh, intervals in between frames, and you can never reliably catch them. This is it. Where? There. This was somewhat interesting. Uh, I was losing Sean this day, and there was nothing to be done about it. I was going to lose him at 1 o'clock. And uh, originally he was supposed to be in this room, so I found this out uh, that morning and I had to think very quickly as to how I could block the scene in such a way that I could shoot him out uh, in such a way that was uh, sensible in terms of setups and, um, and yet make it seem like he had never left the scene. So I just have him, if you rewind, you'll see he steps aside as though he's letting these people in. In fact, he's in London by this point. Uh, it's interesting when we were choosing the paintings for... Uh this sequence, um, there were some people in the process who'd read the script who felt like the Mona Lisa was an inappropriate image for this um, somehow. It was, they were worried that people would, you know, find it unbelievable or comical in some way or whatever, but it actually really sells, sells the idea pretty well. Well, yeah, I had talked about this. Um, you know, uh, Jan was one of the people that said it, and, uh, you know, to his credit, he was right. I mean, you know, I think a lot of the critics reacted with uh, to the irony of burning that, that painting, although um, none of the actual paying customers did. But Jan, you know, has a, a strong background in art, a strong understanding in, in art, and, um, you know, he saw that that was a potential reaction, and, um, you know, I really thought about it. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, if you look at the other paintings in the film that the rebels are possessing, you'll notice that it is not the greatest hits of art. They're actually sort of semi-obscure works uh, of art. I went through a lot of trouble to pick them. We had them all painted. 
you'll be surprised. You cannot just go into a book and, and um, uh, reproduce whatever painting that you want. Um, in fact, you have to get permission from the museum that owns it. So there's actually a very limited number of, of works of art that you can use. Yeah, the clearances for that were a total pain. Uh, right. This was, um, this was, you know, the car is obviously being uh, on a camera uh, trailer, and uh, we were. This was uh, essentially a back lot shot for us, right? We were. Yes, it was. This was on that uh, the uh, the East German Army base, the decrepit East German Army base, and we just went out and grabbed this one afternoon on the process trailer. And uh, I think we had to basically post-sync the whole thing. And this is obviously a CG shot, but this is actually uh, started at Tempelhof uh, Airport, that, that little facade that... That's right. It would be interesting if we ever do a special edition on this, uh, this film to actually show the original shot, um, because it looks, except for the road, it looks nothing like that. And, uh, you know, it was basically my first introduction to uh, digital effects, and... You know, I was waiting kind of with bated breath to see if it would actually work, and you know, what do you know, it did. Its symptom is rage. This is uh, this particular portion is shot in Rome. We shot about seven days in Rome, and uh, I chose uh, Rome because, you know, I kind of shot Berlin out, and uh, Rome was the only, only the place that had similar, uh, similar fascist, sort of neoclassical, uh, fascist take on neoclassical architecture that... Uh, you know, Hitler's production designers had sort of invented, and so I had to go there. But it's not identical. It still is um, a bit more neoclassical. You see the rounded columns, etc. Um, One of the things uh, Kurt loves to do is get uh, hundreds and hundreds of extras and have them walk around in the foreground, <laughs> which would irritate me endlessly. Uh, I do love that. <laughs> I, I got to tell you, I wish I had thousands of extras. I think it would have helped this scene tremendously. It was a problem for us because we picked these huge locations and they would suck up a hundred extras in the blink that, of an that's eye. That's right, or three or four hundred. Yeah, they would. Uh, yeah, absolutely, they would get lost there. Uh, I actually, interestingly enough, I, I think it's some of this sequence here that led um, some people to say that I was. Um, paying homage to Lady Riefenstahl. In fact, I think it's really just the architecture that echoes her style. And your own natures. You have survived. Yeah, there's uh, Bill Figner. He's, Hiding in the crowd. Yep, he, he's the uh, true believer, or pretending to be. This guy has a great look. He's yeah. uh, just a, a martial artist that I picked up, or we picked up, me and Jim Vickers. And uh, the truth to be known, though, if I could do it all over again, I wouldn't hire any martial artist to perform this gun kata. I would perform. I would hire all dancers because martial artists, while they're generally very talented athletes, they are programmed to do one thing, which is the katas they know. Whereas dancers have trained themselves to learn different moves, you know, every day or every week. And so, um, you know, I had the great pleasure of having dinner with Michelle Yeoh once. And, uh, you know, I was just giddy because I love Super Cop. And um, she told me that she had no martial arts experience prior to that movie. And, uh, in fact, she was um, a ballet dancer. So that made a great impression on me. 
I should have taken that and brought uh, and applied it to this film. I think, however, Christian has uh, a lot of uh, dance experience, which would explain why he was uh, so phenomenal in absorbing choreography in this film. And it really saved our asses, I have to say, because, you know, as Lucas will attest to, sometimes we only had, in fact, often we only had one take on a certain setup because there, if there were a large number of squibs involved, uh, the reset time would have killed us. So there's the fact that Christian was able to remember a choreography that he basically learned that day, or even just within the hour before, and nail it the first time when everything was on the line. Uh, it was uh, a, an incalculable benefit in making this film. This set, um, you know, DuPont's office, when Kurt and I first saw it, we thought it was a little over the top. Um, I mean, we loved Wolf Kroger on some level for his, you know, his desire to build things and whatever, but it was a little bit over the top. It was a little too decorated. It was tipping the hand too much that DuPont was not what he appeared to be, and we toned it down just a little bit, um, the decoration in, in here. Oh, I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, we, yeah, we, we basically we added some, uh, some paint and we covered up a little bit of gold, but... Um, Yes, sir, boy. That black floor was a total pain to keep clean. It was a real nightmare. We had gotten to the point where every single person who entered the set had to put these silly footies on. <laughs> and, it, you know, we laugh about it now, but at the time, it was a complete it's, nightmare. It slowed us down. Oh, tremendously. I mean, you know, we lost, we probably lost it you know, half a day or more, because we had to mop the full, even with the footies, they still transmitted dust, uh, and we had to mop the floor between every take. And the black looks good on film, you know, the, the, the production designer and the art director really wanted to have a black floor, and we understand it looks great on film, but boy, it was a total pain for the for the shooting. It's funny, you can hear hear the tone in the producer's voice. <laughs> uh, we understand it looks great on film, but, but you know, I have a different perspective. It looks great on film, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, black floors, you know, reflective black floors. Yes, but I, I gotta get through the days, <laughs> let's, so... Let's do it. Well, it was brutal. This this shoot was brutal, but we did get through the days. We never got behind. Um, you know, we, we ended up completing the days. I didn't always get every shot I wanted, but we ended up getting the you know at least the minimum we needed to to go from one scene to the next. So, but it was it was hard. It was hard because we didn't have uh, much budget, and of course that budget translated in the time. And it was you know it was hard because I was a first time director and. Uh, uh, it was hard on every level. The atmospheric and environmental conditions were hard. It was bitterly cold. Some of the locations were difficult to get in and out of, and uh, it was uh, it was very tough. It was physically demanding, but uh, man, uh, in retrospect, it was great fun. Prosecutorial evidence. For this uh, I'm sure you talked about this already, but this uh, the the hall of enforcement that we were just in. Um, you'll see obviously more of it later in the film was underground. Uh, it was uh, near the Reichstag and uh, essentially under the parliament, the German parliament building, and it's a portion of a subway that's being built that I, I assume is probably close to finish now, right? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> they've, been, they've been shooting so many films on a Resident Evil shot there, and uh, you can see it uh, pretty clearly in there. They may be making enough money where they don't have to actually open it. Of course, they, they, there's so much money in, in West Berlin right now after they had that sort of unexpected windfall of a huge piece of land in Central Europe, money just started pouring in there, you know, like uh, it was being sprayed in with fire hoses. And the, uh, the horizon of Berlin is nothing but cranes, and they have spared no expense in bringing the best architects from all over the world to come and create some of the most sort of magnificent architecture you could ever want. And that's one of the reasons why we chose to shoot there, was because it had not only the uh, Nazi architecture, but it also had some 19th century architecture, which I wanted a bit of. And... Uh, also, it had this uh, fabulous uh, new architecture. 
This was a kind of cool building that was also in the east. That was sort of a ruined building that we uh, essentially made into a... It was a church. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, we made it into a more artfully decorated ruined church. Those bricks weren't there before <laughs> we put them there. <laughs> Those bricks in the background. Right, and some of the uh, colored glass and the windows and the trees and them sticking through it. I had uh, mentioned on the other track how, you know, you would uh, you were the one who had advocated Sean and how... how uh, happy I am that uh, you ultimately prevailed in that choice. He's really got a, some kind of weight that's hard to explain. He's only in the film. This character is so, was so important to the movie. He's only in the film in, you know, three scenes or four scenes, but he, it was so essential. We had to get somebody who you just, you know, believed. That's right. And I always thought uh, that this was a very important part. And it was interesting that a lot of the people, you know, sort of larger mid-level actors came in they weren't interested in this part because it didn't have much page count to it but i said to them i think you're crazy this is this is the role yeah we had some some amazing uh readings um from actors but at the end of the day when we were casting in london they just didn't want this role because it was seemed insubstantial somehow to them and we kept saying you don't understand like this guy has the best lines you know yeah that's right right and uh, Sean, he, he came in and, and he nailed it. Uh, I got uh, so lucky with actors on this film. I have to say, I'll never, I've exhausted, I'm certain, all of my actor karma in making this film. The goodwill that yeah, you have coming. Yeah. No, but, but seriously, because I got great actors. And let's face it, this is a relatively a small budget genre effort from, you know, a genre film studio. And I got top-notch actors. Not only that, but they came in with no attitude, completely professional, uh, with no desire other than do, to do anything other than make this world seem real. They all wanted to be directed. Uh, they all immediately incorporated a direction and advice. And yeah, they were very responsive. It was really yeah, amazing. Especially considering I'm a first-time director. There's no reason, there's no proper reason why they, they should have ever listened to me, but they did. And, uh, you know, whether it was to uh, their credit or not, history will be the judge. You, little things that you may notice are the uh, Yates book in this uh, scene. You know, when it when we squibbed it, we actually did it on a, on a kind of a larger copy so that it would read better on film. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, he did that a number of times. It's a sort of game we play, like the uh, ampules of Librium, or I'm sorry, Prosium, uh, that... Christian or Preston has throughout the film, uh, it, it struck me that we may need one that was three times the size of the ones that are actually in the delivery device, and uh, I'm, I'm glad I thought of it because we would have been kind of screwed otherwise, but you sometimes need to just create bigger things to play to camera. This, uh, this car, you know, one of the problems that sci-fi movies have, and this was a real problem for us, we have limited resources, and we needed to have a fair amount of picture cars, and this car, we ended up, you know, getting this uh, fairly well-known American car and having some, having some German car guys, the, basically the picture car coordinator, we told him, make it white, make it white inside, get everything to be white, you know, cover the seats in white, the door panels, everything, and he, he, was, he did it, but he, was, he thought we were insane. And maybe we were. It looks sort of like the <laughs> ultimate uh, pimp-mobile. <laughs> Um, but, you know, I, I think it, it works. I think I mentioned this on the other track. It was really hard to find a large-sized sedan in, in Europe. Yeah, they just don't have them except Mercedes and BMW. 
And, uh, you know, I sort of made the decision early on that I wasn't going to put money in cars in this movie because that would have sucked up money. And if you pay attention, you notice there are no cars in this movie. People do a lot of walking in Libri, and, well, there's no fat people in Libri either, so it makes a certain amount of sense. Um, but the only cars you'll see are is, is Preston's car and the sweeper tankers. Yet I feel, and it's hard for me to be objective, I feel that you don't, nobody walks away from this film feeling there's a, a vacuum, a, uh, a, a motor vacuum in this movie. The mankind united with infinitely greater purpose in pursuit of war. The screen that we're watching this on, by the way, was a, a nice, expensive piece of hardware that we had to Surprise. buy. This, we had to buy this piece of plexiglass, special plexiglass that we could mount and project an image on, and all of that. And it was, you know, it was a really a fairly big deal to actually organize that um, in Germany. Yeah, it was. And the, the fun thing about it, though, was that I believe, as I recall, it was a surprise expensive. Yeah. Uh, Everybody thought it was no big deal, and it turned out to be, you know, forty thousand dollars. Yikes. Ah, uh, Preston's wife, who he right. betrayed. Yeah, it's uh, sort of interesting in the way that studios will sell films. Uh, the set goes on all the time. But uh, they chose to sell this film not in terms of the dystopic world, but in terms of uh, a man who is betrayed in this scene specifically when the system comes and takes away his wife um, without real justification and it's sort of a revenge film that's really obviously not what the film's about but tell uh, chose to sell it we shot some of that stuff by the way we shot some of the video stuff like what you just saw on video we never actually shot it on film we shot it on video because it was going to be it was needed to look like video and there was no reason to post-process it into, into video when we could just shoot it on video and essentially put it in the telecine process. Yeah, we had a ramp-up day where we shot something on, a couple things on digital video, like uh, Preston's wife being taken away. Not this shot, but the, the later scenes and uh, Mary O'Brien being taken away. And also when she's in interrogation, when she's sitting in her interrogation cell. Yes, exactly, that's right. And uh, yeah, it was going to be digital on screen, so we saw no reason to spend the extra money. little crane, mini crane shots of Kurtz that... Yes, this was the first shot of the film, actually. Yeah, first yeah. shot, first yeah. day. Yeah. And, uh, you know, <laughs> Dion basically was front and center, and everybody's watching, you know. This was sort of unfamiliar territory to me. I was unaware that the entire crew stands by to make their assessment of, um, you know, all the unknown quantities, director, DP, etc. And that first day, or even the first scene. And, uh, you know, this poor guy, he had to work the wheels and nail um, a complex move. A relatively it. complex move uh, as the first shot, first day. But, uh, you know, I, I learned a lot from, from Dion in making this film. Um, I think this is actually his first mainstream film, and I'm proud that uh, we hired him for it. Um, we knew he was very talented from his reel, uh, but uh, he's a very quiet guy, and sometimes it's difficult to engage, especially when you don't know him when you first a, meet him. A lot of people felt like he wasn't doing anything or he was not moving fast enough or whatever, and, you know, it just, he has a different process, you know. It sure looks good on film. It was absolutely beautiful. We would look at the dailies and go, wow, that's amazing. 
although people did think it was too dark. Um, the biggest objection that the studio had and some of the other people like Jan had that it was too dark. And, uh, and that was a big issue that we debated in the first week or two of the film. Right. I actually, I always loved it. Um, you know, actually what I learned from, from Dion, and you better put your hands over your ears, Lucas, is, <laughs> is that uh, when people say things to you, you just sort of, you know, nod and with that same look that uh, your dog has when you put the phone to his ear, yeah. and then you go ahead and do exactly what you were doing anyway. <laughs> yeah. Now that's, that's not news to me. Uh, that's, that's the producer's, uh, you know, existence. But, uh, well, I didn't want you to know that I was actually conscious of yeah. <laughs> consciously <laughs> right. doing that. Right. I just want you to think I was stupid. This is actually the back of the. Bur this is that's digital, but uh, the the lower part of this is the back. Starting of the, right there. The Berlin Stadium. Yeah, the uh, the Glockenturm. Yeah, it's all. Most of that frame is practical. When we saw this on the location scout, we absolutely loved it. We were just like, oh my god, we love this. The outside, and we used the interior of this where that guard is standing up there for. A scene later on with Preston when he's talking to Dupont, on right. the, and uh, we just loved it. We saw it and we were like, "My God, this is made of granite and stone and limestone, and it seems permanent." And we we want to get this on film. We liked uh, we liked anything we could use for most multiple locations. I'd mentioned on the other track how Tay had just learned to drive and he almost killed some people. <laughs> yeah, he almost ran over a grip, <laughs> and um, uh, didn't seem to bother him much, though. Not the grip, but Tay. Yeah. And uh, that's uh, Tempelhof. Maybe I'll drop by later. Get my interval adjusted. Uh, did you talk about these vehicles and where we got them from and stuff? Uh, yeah, I did. I, I had mentioned that um, I did. I talked about it at some length. One thing I didn't mention about them is that as they are fire engines, they're German fire engines, they're uh, man cats, uh, and one, one AIs, uh, the big ones, is that they were red when we got them. Yeah. And we had to actually, they actually drove that thing up to Berlin on the road. We couldn't put it on a trailer because um, it's too heavy. Way too big. Uh, from Munich. And that, that is a monstrous vehicle. But they're red when we got them, and uh, I needed them to be white. And we couldn't afford to paint them white and then unpaint them. It just would have been too costly. So we discovered there was this process that's called peel painting, where they basically take uh, strips of latex of whatever color you want, and they cover the vehicle in them. And when you're done, they just peel it right off like a skin. It was uh, pretty cool, and I have to say, I think it saved our ass. This is the only time in the film you'll see the white uh, sweeper coats. Um, we sort of shot them, and then we realized we didn't like them that much, and so they were black. You see them one more time later on. Actually, there's, yeah, they're, and they also show up earlier in the, the video, them burning stuff. Um, I actually like them. They just have to be used uh, judiciously um, because they could become, we discovered they be could become silly uh, rather rather quickly. The other thing was that uh, something I didn't talk about was uh, my production, I mean, costume designer, Joe Poro, Joseph Poro, who's uh, very talented, had designed them, and uh, Joe just loves color, and he had made them of an iridescent fabric, and uh, that was probably the mother of pearl aspects, was just something that put them over the top. Yeah. You're gonna burn it, aren't you? But, um, you know, one thing I love that Joe did was uh, design these cleric outfits, which I'd asked him to base around the sort of frock coats of a 19th century deacon. And uh, he came up with this, this design, which um, I think cynics have decried, described as Prada. Um, but I, I, think it's, I think it's great, you know. It looks like armor, 
And I was very specific about what uh, Christian or Preston would be wearing and what scenes, you know, his gloves and this long jacket were his armor, and then, you know, the suit underneath was less less so. But uh, I think it's, it does a great job in, in um, adding to, you know, their nobility on one hand and their knightliness, but also their um, sort of scary aspects of their character. I was worried when I was making this that people would think that was prosium that he was giving her, but nobody seems to have complained. This we there's a lot of concrete in this movie, and this concrete room was actually a fairly large room, um, sort of down the hall and up a set of very rickety metal stairs. Uh, you took your life in your hands to actually get to this set, actually, um, because we were in an unfinished subway, and uh, you know we're using these essentially, you know, what construction workers are walking around in with hard hats, and we're, we have a crew of a hundred people walking around in here, and it was somewhat of a nightmare for me as a producer. Just I was worried about the danger to everybody. Um, it was also freezing cold, and you may remember behind one of these walls was a, a massive amount of water. That the the um, they told us that the subway in the making of the subway, what they did was they pumped 50 feet under the ground uh, under the surface of the ground in Berlin was uh, sort of the water table, if you will, and what they had to do was sort of pump the water out um, in order to make the subways. And so I kept thinking while we were on this set, oh my God, like if that wall it wasn't made to German precision standards, you know, that wall of water would come in here and kill us all. Uh, yeah, for sure. I live. Um, also, there was, remember, there was a, a big hole in the center of the room yeah. that plum would cause people to plummet to their death, you know, far below into this cavern and the subway. That's and it, it wasn't just a hole. It went it cut across the entire room. It was, it was literally a cut in, the, in yeah, the floor. I can't imagine what the practical purpose of it is. But um, Christian and Emily are sitting on top of it now. We put a grating over the top of it, which is kind of a squirrely proposition, and, and had them sit on it. You know, I, I was bemoaning on the track that I, I had two good wide shots of this room, and um, I think I got so myopic in the cutting of this scene that I took them out and forgot about them, and I wish that I had one in there because it really was a, uh, a nice set whose production value has been lost because of that. I do remember being mad at you this day um, for shooting um, 22,000 22, feet, feet of film, and I was really pissed. And I was like, listen, pal, you can do this today, but you're not going to get to do this on this entire movie, okay? You get six or 7,000 feet of film, and that's it, and thank you very much. Good night. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I shot so much footage for that uh, scene because there are, you know, a number of angles, and I crossed the line, too, which is what which ate, up also, the, yeah. ate up the film because we had to sort of cover things from both sides of the line. Um, uh, the scene should have turned out better, frankly. Um, but, you know, I saw it as a critical and pivotal scene, and it is. And not only that, but you it's the, the one scene where these two actors sort of get to go at it together. And uh, I wanted to let them do that. And then you compound that with the fact uh, of that Emily gets better as she goes along. And it's like playing, you know, blackjack in Vegas, when you start winning, you want to stay at the table. And when each take is better, you, you just want to lean forward and say, well, geez, if we just do one more, what will she give me? And so she sucks you in that way. 
His collar is open, a rare casual moment for a Grammaton cleric. That almost should be should have been the one sheet. <laughs> I'm actually serious, I and mean, it kind of sums up the film. Uh, I mean, listen, I think it's personally better than the one sheet that was ultimately selected, but. You see this. Uh, you see the injector prop a lot uh, in this movie, and uh, this this one prop was really worked most of the time, not all of the time, and uh, we used it a lot. They're very expensive to make, actually. Proper, really good-looking props are surprisingly expensive. And yes, you know, for instance, uh, later in the scene where he listens to Beethoven, he uh, has a ball, a, a snowball with um, with uh, Eiffel Tower in it. And just as an aside, it's it's really interesting how people will read things into films. And I've learned to just shut up now and, and not dispel their illusions. But I saw somebody online saying that uh, the first scene in the church where he shoots his partner, Sean Bean, was in fact Notre Dame. And this library is actually built over old Paris. And that's why when he sees the Eiffel Tower and the ball, he connects so strongly to it. And um, you know, it's fascinating. The, the audience will synthesize things for you. I wish you could you know, figure out a way to. We could figure out a way to, to predict that. But in any case, this ball, this snowball. First of all, it was very difficult to get. You know, it made so it looked halfway decent, and so it would have snow in it. And there were many sort of trials and errors. But when it came down to it on the day, you know, the idea that it was we were, it was supposed to fall and and drop, in a uh, homage slash ripoff of Citizen Kane, I'm told, and um, it wouldn't break. And uh, I, yeah, you, know, you kept bouncing it off. Yeah, just over and, and over and, again. And, you know, we burned, and since it was high speed, we burned up a lot of film, and I only got uh, it to break twice. This was another tricky. Uh, this was a tricky set and a, and a very tricky shot. It took a while to get this move right. Salve and salvation. It has delivered us from pathos, from sorrow, the deepest. It's hard. It was hard to get right because the, uh, you know, first of all, you have to has to be framed in such a way that your eye goes to Christian, and you know, clearly, you're not working the wheels on something like this, on a hothead, and also because the camera has to come down and clear people out in such a way that it doesn't interrupt the light or you know or cause ripples in the other people around it so you can see it sort of there uh, where it does and all that it has done to make us great but it didn't, didn't take us too long to get actually for a change no this is all real stuff by the way i mean it's pretty clear we didn't build this stuff we just found the most amazing practical locations and begged them to let us shoot them and uh and they did Right. This was a uh, shot in a uh, sports arena where they raced bicycles. Originally, the scene was supposed to take place on a subway, and you know we we didn't have the resources to do that. So, uh, you know, I thought we'd just shoot it on the stairs. You know, he was supposedly the scene where he's waiting to get in the stairs. He would have been waiting to get on the subway, and on this portion, he would be sitting on the subway, you know, watching people and looking at people. Instead, we did it this way, and uh, works we, out fine. We made these extras walk up and down a very significant flight of stairs. That is not some, like, digital shot. That's really a set of stairs that goes on forever. We made them walk up and down those stairs right. all day long. 
And it was a great set of stairs, too. I have to say, you know, in Germany, you find some amazing things. You know, doors are something that impressed Lucas and I to no end. The, in Berlin, anyway, all the doors are massive and ve- perfectly weighted. Uh, yeah, the so, engineering was, like, ridiculous. Do you, they, remember, do you remember that one next to the Adlon? Yeah. That sure. was, you know, a door that may have weighed 10 tons or something yeah. like that. And we, we just walked by it, and we were like, oh, my God, yeah. look at that. And you could open it with a fingertip. They, the, so Germans have a real door Jones, <laughs> uh, apparently. One of my regrets about, about dressing this set was that, you know, we didn't have much money, and I hate to keep flogging that, but to, to, for tables, for these desks. But I wish I hadn't selected something that was naked underneath the way these are. We could have easily, with uh, cardboard, you never would have known it, made them look like they had a lot more mass and substance, and it would have filled up the room some more. So that was a mistake. This is, uh, you know, it's amazing what set decoration can do. Those screens in the back, in the background that are playing, uh, there's four of them, and um, they were somewhat expensive, these little projectors and these screens, and they show up at various places in the film, and we kind of just carted them around from place to place, but it kind of makes it look like it's more, uh, more than it is, in a way. Yeah, it is. Um, this was a really tough day, maybe our toughest day. We had one day, you know, with no overtime. Uh, to get all of, it was six scenes, I believe, and uh, it was pretty brutal. We we managed to get it. It was brutal because I just didn't want to um, listen to reason, basically. And I, I wanted a sort of di- different setup, different lighting setup and different camera setup for each scene so that we wouldn't get into sort of repetitious rhythm whenever we were at his desk. And so it made it really tough, but uh, we just squeaked by and we got it. And now I'm glad I did this is the group that found the Brosium factory. All of these uh, squibs, the many thousands of squibs that Uli had to rig uh, in these sequences, it's kind of semi-hilarious, you know. I think well, there's more squibs in some of these scenes than there are in ho- other movies, you know, the entire movie. And uh, we, uh, we sort of went crazy with the squibs, but we, we like this stuff. Kurt and I particularly, uh, you know, uh, have a have an endless appetite for uh, <laughs> gunfire and mayhem. Right. Speaking of which, that's a G36, an HKG36 that he's holding there. It's a really cool gun. I think it's the standard issue for the German military, I think. Don't quote me on that. Um, very nice gun. We were originally supposed to get some guns from uh, the, Belgian, the Belgian government and uh, some FN90s, and they didn't give them to us. Right, so we ended up using uh, rubber versions, the FN90s. And even those were hard to get, yeah. because you know it's you, it's, you can't even ship uh, facsimile guns into the countries. They have very strict uh, restrictions on, on that's right on weapons in Germany. Yeah, uh, Uli Nefser, Lucas mentioned uh, a minute ago, our special effects guy. He was he was great. He was one of the rocks on this film. Thank you God know, he, for him. He, the thing is, is that uh, yeah, when something was supposed to be there, it was, and it worked. And sometimes it worked better than you wanted it to. But even better than that, the thing that you end up really valuing in somebody, which is like somebody like Michael Lindsay, is at the last moment when there's no time left and you irresponsibly come up with an idea on the fly and you turn to them and say, can we do this? You know, we're going to shoot in five minutes. And they say, I'll see what I can do. Or no problem, I'll get it done. And they get it done. And you love those people. You know, that's the sort of distinction between the people who get it done and the people who get it done on short notice. There's plenty of people on a film set who say no, and it's... Oh, it can't be done, yeah. Lo- lovely to meet people who say, yes, it can be done. It you know, and is. cheaply, affordably, if you will. The fact of the matter, the thing I learned is that um, 
You know, generally, and, th and this certainly isn't the rule, there are certainly exceptions to it, but generally people will do the minimum that they can get away with. It's not their movie, you know. They're journeymen very often, and they're going to go on, and uh, they're going to go on to another movie about this and forget about this, and very often they haven't even read the script. And, uh, you know, they've simply, you know, referred to what they need to to do their part. And, um, you know, those you meet those people, though, who make each movie their movie. It's their version of Equilibrium. It's Lucas Foster's Equilibrium. It's Wolf Kroger's Equilibrium. It's Dion Beebe's Equilibrium. It's Klaus Badelt's Equilibrium. And those are the people, you know, who, uh, you know, who you'll work with again. The uh, set decorator on this movie, Ann Kuljan, gathered all this sort of stuff that's in the movie, um, and it, she came up with a lot of amazing things. I mean, she made metal desks for no money that seemed like they were, you know, way more substantial than they were, and she found, uh, you know... Well, that was the thing, is that they were substantial. She, those, the, you're talking about the stainless steel I wanted ones. To own, I wanted to put those in my house. If you could have shipped them back, you would have. Um, no, they, they somehow... There's found some excellent German metal worker who had made these uh, stainless steel props that were fantastic and... Uh, I actually cheap. wanted that gurney. I wanted to keep that gurney because it was so precision engineered. It was such a precision engineered piece of stainless steel. I was am amazed. I wanted to keep it. Well, you have your box. <laughs> <laughs> I have my little metal box that uh, I left with. You have the clipboard, right? I you have the clipboard. The yeah. That's mine. This is the, um, interestingly, somewhat interestingly, this is the, uh, the ball I was talking about. And I had two of these balls and one I, small one and it, one big one that's right and i don't remember why it occurred to me that i would need to but uh for some reason it did occur to me and um i know people didn't think it would work but the fact of the matter is that the ball you see in his hand before he drops is about a third of the size of this ball but nobody seems to notice I remember when we were looking for a uh, Victrola. Uh, Victrola. I remember we were at some gun show somewhere, and we saw that guy who was making Victrolas, and we kept saying, oh, we got to find something that intricate in Germany. Now, we were at a gun show to hand out pamphlets <laughs> encouraging people to abandon this uh, violent, <laughs> ultra-violent pursuit, right? Yeah, that's, that's right. Okay. I guess it's it's politically inappropriate to say uh, you 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 like and support the idea that. Well, I just don't want people to get the wrong impression to think that we have any interest in guns because we don't. <laughs> yeah, it's just something we do for movies. I know, yeah, and really, it's ironic commentary too. We put them in there and we go over the top with them. You know, it's sort of like Archie Bunker or Homer Simpson. They they make a political point by taking things to the extreme. Right. Right. That's what we tell people. Right. 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 Now shut up. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm perpetrating a front here. <laughs> okay. They miss things sometimes. I'll take it in myself. It's interesting. Uh, this uh, fire, the fire gags that we did in this movie, there are a couple of them. Um, they, we really controlled them pretty well, um, given that we uh, set this building on fire. I was very worried about it from a safety perspective, but um, I mean, these are all, this is sort of in a rail yard. Um, the former. Right, on our, uh, part of our back lot, our German, East German back lot. And we set these buildings on fire, and I'm ama in, in America, you can't imagine what it would have taken to get them to let us do that. But here, they were like, yeah, you want to burn that building? Sure. 
And uh, we kept it under control because of Uli Nefser, because he knew what he was doing. Yeah. I think Uli is the guy. He's the go-to guy in Berlin. He gets, you know, he does all the movies. He gets all the work. And they respect him, and, and they should. I mean, I think, I, I think last I heard, Oliver Stone was going to bring Uli to, like, America to do his... I, don't quote me on that, but, yeah, there's something like that. He's, he's that good. What do you want me to do, sir? He really gave us a lot of confidence. There's Mike Smith again, who's, yeah. who is every <laughs> mask sweeper in this movie. You know, I might make a comment about that. I is very conscious decision on my part to put all of these uh, gun-toting sweepers and enforcers in masks, and uh, um, I did it to make them so that they weren't human, uh, so that they were more like puppets, and so it would be more like a video game when they were shooting them. Um, because a couple reasons. I didn't want to get in trouble. I didn't want to have problems with the MPAA. I didn't want to have to cut anything out. And at the end of the day, I didn't have to cut anything out. And, uh, you know, I, I also knew that it, it would allow me to shoot people in the head, as grim as that sounds, without actually... Uh, having the graphic uh, if effects. You shot, if you shot a masked person in the face, you mean it wouldn't have the same impact as a as an unmasked person? Well, yes, it has the same impact, but in a different way. That's not gory. The glass shatters. You get the same visceral impact, but you don't get the gore, and you don't have to cut cut it. So it, it worked out really well. But not only that, it, I also did it also consciously because um, I didn't want to have to deal with. Uh, people acting, people non-actors, stuntmen, etc., acting. With all respect to stuntmen who are actually good actors, uh, most extras and uh, most stuntmen, they can't act. And it, it can screw up a scene, and you will have to potentially cut around it. So I figured if I covered up their faces, it would allow me to uh, post-sync their voices if necessary, and uh, I could get away with any kind of performance as long as they were standing in the correct position. This is the, this is the inside right. of that set that we were talking about earlier, the Glockenturm. It's, it's that the inside of that building. Cathedral-like. And I remember you were concerned about these words back there. Yeah, it, there's some pretty interesting uh, words written on the wall in that building. Well, it's ger it's German. It's in German. And um, we didn't really know what it said, but it's done in this, it was done in World War II, or just prior to World War II, and done in this heavily uh, uh, Germanic style that was all the rage and very recognizable. And we didn't know what it said. I was going to shoot here no matter what. And uh, Lucas was worried, though. Just slightly concerned. <laughs> and about I said, it, yeah. Um, yeah, don't worry about it. We won't light it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so. Father's will. Call it faith. You have it, I assume. But a great set, you know. Yeah. Great cheap set. It didn't cost us anything, you know, anything to build, and we got a lot of value out of places like that where we just shot these massive buildings and edifices that people constructed, like, you know, the Tempelhof Airport or the subway set that you're seeing. You know, it's a matter of opinion on whether this looks like a $20 million film or not. I don't think it does. Um, I think it looks like more than a $20 million film. And that all comes back to making decisions like that, finding, um, you know, sets that will work for the scene uh, that, you know, cost the same as other sets that would work. That there's won't my convey. box. And there's, that's right. That's <laughs> his box. And, um, you know, and, and using them and, and making what are hopefully intelligent choices uh, about that to give scope to a film. That's in part why we went to Berlin. I mean, I think we made a conscious choice to try to, you know, find this stuff in real life. And, and there were a lot of other places we could have gone in the world from, you know, we, we talked about Brazil and we talked about Romania right. and various other places. And we looked at a lot of location photos and we sent scouts out. And we, we ultimately decided Berlin had the most interesting mix of kind of old and new. 
and uh, that's right. It, it is it is a unique mix, actually, of uh, old. I mean, we wanted the uh, the uh, sort of nineteenth century architecture. It didn't really work out at the end of the day. But you know, Dupont's office, we were hoping we'd get to shoot in one of these German palaces. Uh, it ended up having to having to build it, which was kind of taxing. But uh, and then obviously we wanted the fascist architecture, and then we wanted some of the the uh, sort of futuristic architecture that's being built there. Unlike Tay, uh, Christian is weirdly enough an excellent driver. He was able to pull up at high speed and, and stop hit that spot this every is, time. That's right. That's that's hitting a mark. Most of you might think, oh, I can do that. It's no problem. But this guy is pulling into a frame, you know, a composed frame, and he has to hit the exact place every time. And he did it. Our professional drivers on set, you know, and these are European type drivers who were less easily impressible than American drivers, you know, the ex-Formula One or whatever they are. They were all extremely impressed by that. There's our very nice American car we feature over and over again. Yep. Hey, remember this puppy? Um, oh, yes. We had problems, uh, one note to future filmmakers. Mm. Um, the uh, <laughs> puppies grow, and they grow at a rapid rate. And uh, by, we picked the puppy, but by the time we shot him, he was uh, starting to get a little uh, puffy. Especially, especially the Bernese, <laughs> Bernese Mountain Dog. And it wasn't just that, it wasn't we, that just that we picked him and he started to grow. He was growing from day to day. Yeah, it was um, He'd show up the next day, and he'd be the size of a pony. Yeah. Uh, he was... He was a um, remarkably stupid dog, I have to say. <laughs> and we really burned a lot of film trying to get him to do the most basic things like that. I ended up stealing a lot of shots. But uh, the fact of the matter is, is that, um, although some people think it's manipulative, the audience's heart really goes out to this dog. This is the scene where I think the audience, for, for the this most part... This is where we get them. That's right. The mo they, for the most part, they've been sitting there, and the jury's out about what they think about this film. But after this scene where he... Um, kills 13 people for one really Puppy. dumb dog. <laughs> uh, the audience is not going anywhere at that point. Okay. There's the inner costume that's underneath his outer costume. That's right, which you'll start to see more after this point in the film. He is cute. <laughs> he is adorable. That little face mask thing is obviously a little digital piece that we added later. That's right. I spoke about Dan on the other, yeah. other track. It was really cold when we shot this. I mean, I can't even describe to you. This is like 3 or 4 a.m. in the middle of Berlin, in heading towards the winter, serious winter. We were in like... I don't know, late October or something, we were shooting this. And I mean, I went and bought like the full on North Face jacket and I still froze my, uh, I my did ass too. off. I it had, was unbelievable. I had six or seven layers on, serious layers on, and it was brutally cold. And, you know, when I think about how cold this is and how inured the Germans are to this kind of cold and how, you know, the winter in, uh, in Russia knocked them on their asses, it makes me realize how cold it must be in Russia. It was pretty, it's pretty, you know, unglamorous um, sometimes filmmaking. You know, you're out, you've got your boots on and you're up to your, your ass in mud and, you know, it's freezing or it rains or whatever and you still have to, like, make your day and it doesn't really matter. That's right. It's do or die and especially on our schedule, there was no second chance. You weren't going back and that was that. The, the one sort of in... Uh, insensible thing I found in Germany was the heaters that they had out there 
which yeah. people would run to every chance they got. They were basically thigh-high uh, propane tanks that heated a heating element to red hot to red hot temperature. More than uh, one jacket was melted on those glow. things, and there was no protection whatsoever. <laughs> it was basically having an ultimate uh, an open fire. I know I burned my jacket on it, and uh, I think there was a number of people running around in flames. <laughs> but we were too busy trying to stay warm to be overly concerned about it. We picked these uh, shotguns in the early part of the process um, specifically so that he could do this move. And we added those... Uh, right there, yeah. Those foregrips. And the lights. And, and the interesting thing is is that Christian was the only person who was able to do that. Uh, I mean, you know, I'm a fairly strong guy, and I could not rack those shotguns like that, but he had no problem doing it. And the stuntmen couldn't do it either. Or I should say, the we really didn't have stuntmen because he did all his, almost all his own stunts, except that right there. <laughs> By the way, that, that is not wire foo there. That is... Um, uh, Mike Smith, who was a championship diver, doing a, an open layout, uh, basically off the back of a motorcycle. Yeah. And um, Christian was in remarkable shape. I don't know, you may was. not remember this, but uh, he was so serious about it. He uh, asked me to get him, like, uh, essentially full gym apparatus into his apartment, and he lived in one of those German, you know, fourth-floor walk-up type places. I right. mean, a beautiful apartment, but, you know, up a flight of stairs, no elevator. Or if you've ever been to Europe, you know, the elevators in Europe leave a lot to be desired. They're made for two people, all of them. And we had to get his full-on workout equipment into his uh, apartment, and uh, uh, me and a few assistants and Christian basically schlepped that thing up the stairs to that's get, right. to get that's it up right. there so he could work out. Christian is very method. Um, I understand I talked to some people on Reign of Fire, and they said he wasn't quite so method, but he was very method in this movie, and I, I appreciated that, you know, when he, he was Christian, and he, I mean Preston, and he stayed Preston throughout, throughout the film. He was relieved, you know, we shot the um, bathroom scenes, which were the only scene, that, and the bedroom scene um, in the first week, which were the only scenes which required him to have his shirt off so that he no longer had to do his strict diet regimen that he was on. Yeah, he took it pretty seriously. He took it very seriously. He took this. He was. He came to play, and uh, he played hard. And uh, we always we wanted him very badly, but I don't think either one of us realized that he would embody this part so perfectly. At least I feel he did. I seem to recall getting uh, the um, art department to get this plate into proper position so that you could see those little prosium vials was a big deal. We lost 45 minutes. Yeah, we lost the first day. <laughs> on the first because day. Because it was in the wrong place for photography. In the, it was uh, the, sometimes the smallest, sometimes the, the biggest things, you know, stunts that have, you know, 500 squibs going off and, uh, and a backflip, they go off perfectly. And sometimes the smallest things take an hour to do. It's very strange. You may notice that that's another black floor. That was a rubber, rubber type floor that we had put in this, the Baronsal here um, where we shot. And it was also a total pain in the ass to keep clean with those overhead shots where we had to, you know, people were running around uh, fighting on them. That's right. It was pretty disastrous. You can see the footprints if you look closely. Um, but it's not too bad. It's not nearly as bad as I thought it would be. And um, these are uh, these wooden sort of kendo-like swords that they're fighting and with. And we broke all of them. We broke all of them. These guys were really whacking on each other for real. They both give, we, Vickers gave them a lot of training. No stuntmen uh, yeah. for this. Yeah. Um, they beat on each other with these wooden kendo things and they broke every single one of them. That's right. It was crazy. And if 
The costumes, we, we really like these costumes. Um, they took some doing to get these uh, sort of Japanese style outfits, but you know. Uh, I think they're very good. I think that's uh, one of the best things that, to that Joe Joseph did. Yeah. did in the film. Uh, they're certainly fantastic costumes in a sense of fantasy. Uh, and, you know, when you're looking at them outside the context of the movie or outside the context of the frame, uh, I think that you can be tempted to say, well, that, that's silly. But uh, I thought that they really were, and I think they do. Certainly nobody's remarked on them. We had a tough time lighting this room. Uh, the Baron's Hall was a very tricky place to light. Um, and uh, you'll see that there are these um, essentially uh, practicals um, on the floor that we've covered with. Uh, Again, the aluminum. The aluminum. Nice uh, steel, yeah. yeah uh, to, uh, so that we could light it. One interesting thing is this is the exact same room that the, uh, the gun kata instructional takes place. I don't know if everybody recognizes it. And, um, I will say this is the one of the one few times I, I got into Dion's business because he was going to keep the lighting the same as the scene where they're practicing, the, the troops are basically practicing the gun cut. And I said, no, I, I want to see if we can make this um, uh, a much different looking room if possible, you know, as if it were a different location and more dramatic. And um, you know, he put his finger to the chin and then he hopped off and, and he did it. I think it's a great looking scene. It's very unusually uh, lit. Um, Kurt shot most of the stuff in this movie. There's some second unit stuff. That was uh, this this episode in the movie, this piece. There's some second unit photography right, this here. This is all second unit here. Uh, this actor, last name of Calabra, as an Italian guy. I selected him because I thought he had really soulful eyes. I said this in the other track. This guy looks just like Albert Durer's in his self-portrait. I'm amazed every time I see it. That was that was the director being thrown against the wall. Yeah, not because of sense of fence, but just because <laughs> they thought he looked like he deserved it. Oh, yeah, exactly. We managed to catch it on film. <laughs> Get out of here, see You're funny. such a ham. I see nothing funny about that. Yeah, I thought it was amusing. I, I like that I part. Know, I know you did. <laughs> One of the most valuable things that a DP brings uh, to the process is making cheap sets look expensive, and a good DP uh, can do that. And I, I think Dion lit uh, some sets that if you had seen them in the harsh light of day, you wouldn't have thought much at all, and he lit them in such a way that, that they became expensive-looking sets. This uh, portion of the film was uh, done by Harvey Harrison. We hate it when violence is done to other human beings. Gratuitously. That's gratuitous. And yes. Sometimes it's necessary <laughs> to, you know, right certain social wrongs. Go. But I think at the end of the day, that's why, you know, for the people that the film works for, that's why it works, is because uh, there's a very compelling reason for Preston to do what he does. I had a debate with uh, Kurt about the use of slow motion in, in the film um, in the early going. Um, I, I think it's, 
it's not overused in this movie. Um, we did use it in the places where it was useful to tell the story. Right. I don't like to use it at all. The only place I used it actually was uh, in the... F I slowed down the uh, flip, believe it or not, even though it doesn't really look like it. When he flips off the back of the motorcycle, I slowed that down slightly just so the audience would have a little more time to process it. Slowed down that, uh, not, not so that the audience could see what was happening. It was strictly stylistic for stylistic purposes. And uh, there's one or two shots in the uh, final fight sequence in the hallway, I think, that have been uh, slowed down a little bit. But, I, you know, there's plenty of uh, love letters and treatises to slow motion that have been uh, done in cinema. And there's sort of, I feel like there's no reason for me to do it. And uh, I think it's nice to see things that aren't slowed down. I like the visceral nature of action. And I think it conveys, it's conveyed much better in, in real time. And even though the action in this movie is certainly fantastic, it has a more real feeling because it's not... Uh, it's slow motion. I love slow motion. I love all the stuff that was done in The Matrix, and uh, it suited it, the film, very well. However, I think if I had slowed down a lot of the stuff, you would have been able to see uh, some of the the uh, flaws and wrinkles that were there that uh, are not evident when you watch it at full speed. Offenders ought to be shot on sight. They have valuable information. They can be put to much better use. Here's some of that boring talk that happens in these action movies. Sometimes people have to talk. It's really irritating. Well, you need to provide an opportunity for people to go out and get popcorn. <laughs> it's true. Do what they need to do. It's true. Um, these guns, you know, we had somewhat of a, a lengthy process on talking about what the guns were going to be, and um, we, we had them made. Um, we spent some time designing them, and we ended up having a company in L.A., um, make them. Um, we had several different sets of guns. We had some air guns, air gun versions of it, and uh, of the Beretta, and then we had some some other variations of it that would eject the shells straight upward, uh, and uh, we obviously had guns that didn't fire as well. That's right. And at the end of the day, it was uh, more often than not the uh, the foam guns we ended up using. That is a foam gun right there, and uh, it looks pretty photorealistic. It'll be better if you have it. I like the way Tay is lit here. I guess it, it might be interesting to some people that this film was originally when, when Kurt and I were sort of first getting started and we decided we wanted to make the movie and that he was going to direct it. Um, the film was going to be financed under a Dutch tax deal and what, what happened was uh, I got the bright idea to hop on a plane and go looking for money so that we could get the film made because it's not so easy to get um, a first time director's movie, particularly if it's you know, more than a couple million bucks off the ground. Or any movie. Or any movie. Uh, and so I went to Amsterdam, and I met with uh, the bank, uh, ABN Amro Bank, and sort of work, started working on a Dutch tax deal whereby they would finance the majority of the film, and Kurt kind of came over there uh, shortly thereafter, and we had an interesting uh, couple of days with them. The yeah, that's right. It was interesting. Uh, the Dutch are an interesting people. Um, Jan de Bont was also one of the producers on this film, um, uh, although Lucas was the most active one. 
And uh, it was through his residency in Holland that we would have been able to get secure this uh, theoretical uh, financing deal. Um, it's interesting, though, having gone over there and scouted the place, there are, the Dutch place, say, a high value on art, and, you know, it's pretty clear from their history that pound for pound, they've probably cre- contributed the most to the artistic history of Europe out of all the, the, uh, the countries there. And, uh, you know, architecture is no exception. Uh, the constructive mo- constructivist movement was founded there. And they have a lot of great stuff, but unfortunately it is all spread out all over Holland. And so it makes it uh, very impractical. And also the, uh, the 19th century uh, architecture that I was also interested in, you know, palaces, etc., which you usually associate with Europe, do not exist in Holland. And I was very curiously, I asked some of the you know, Dutch people who took us around why this was, and they said that the Dutch are uh, a very modest people. They thought that uh, displaying wealth was in bad taste, so palaces simply were not built. You know, it's a nation of bankers, essentially, and they're very much into keeping their money, you know, in a place in more liquid forms than in um, than in palaces. And uh, they, he, they told me that cell phones were slow to come into being there because people thought that it would be pretentious to be seen with a cell phone. In any case, the point being, ultimately, it would not have been practical. It would have been a nightmare to shoot this, this film there. I want to know about him. Well, I suggest you go ask him. I understand that he's dead. Killed by your friends at the Tetrachrome. Um, some word about the origins of this film. This was an idea that had been haunting me for a couple of years. I remember I actually uh, pitched it to Lucas uh, in Cozumel when we were yeah, down there we were, di- we were scuba diving. diving long ago. I think it was back in 95 or 96. And uh, then I just put it aside, and I didn't really think it was a particularly commercial idea, but it was an idea that haunted me for a long time and uh, one day I said oh I'll just write it and get it out of the way and I wrote the first draft in about a week a little less and I just put it away for a couple months and then I happened to show it to Lucas and to my surprise uh, Lucas actually liked it and um, he showed no sort of hesitation in advocating me as uh, being the director of it which surprised me but I didn't say anything and uh, <laughs> and I've regretted it ever since. <laughs> that's right. And so, you know, we set off on this journey, and as I said, we went to Amsterdam to attend to raise the money, you know, and, you know, we were shelling out our own, our own dollars to uh, try and get this off the ground. And uh, one of the things that the deal, the Dutch deal would have been predicated on is uh, would be American distribution, as all of these deals are. So we sent the script out, my agent sent the script out to, you know, two or three places, and... Um, it got a surprising uh, response. Everybody liked it. And That's right. And people were really interested in it. Dimension jumped on it instantly, overnight, which shocked the hell out of us. I remember I got the call as I came back, as I got out of the plane from Holland. As a matter of fact, uh, Lucas had stayed over there to, to wrangle with the bankers. And uh, they said they wanted it, but they wanted the world. And so that meant the Dutch were out. And, uh, you know, it was much more sensible for us to go with um, an established production company. So uh, we went with them. And... You know, they never said boo about me directing either, so, and uh, I never brought the subject up. What do you know about him? Thank you, Pop. Everyone out now.
Dimensions Only interest was essentially in the casting, um, who was going to be Preston and uh, who was going to be Mary, and uh, and uh, certain you know story notes that they wanted to see us execute. That's right, and it was a very protracted. Uh, process, the casting of this movie, and Lucas and I had seen uh, American Psycho at about this time, and uh, we were very interested in Christian, but he was unavailable because he was making Corelli's mandolin, so it wasn't even a question, but the the process ended up being so drawn out that uh, by the nine months later yeah. or so, uh, by the time we were unable to agree on anybody between, you know, myself, Lucas, and the studio, he became available. And, um, and he was somebody we could agree on. Yes, uh, we could easily agree on. And, and he turned out to be even better than I thought. Interesting. It was a challenge to try to figure out how to cast this part in particular because the range of emotions that the character goes through is kind of extreme um, and uh, there are many fine actors out there but to take somebody from the depths of coldness to you know sort of feeling every little thing and you know almost vibrating from your senses to back to coldness again at the end of the film um, but with with something extra that he's gotten picked up along the way that that was a tough thing to to find. It was tough to find actors who could do that. Absolutely, we needed to find someone that the audience would like and want to take the journey with, even though he was doing things that were uh, apparently reprehensible, like you know, murdering uh, people we liked, like Sean Bean. Do you know why you came? met a lot of actors. Uh, Kurt and I sat with, I mean, we we're sort of oriented toward actors, but we, we, for every part, we met tons and tons of actors and we sat with them and talked to them and occasionally auditioned them or had them read for us or whatever, but it was, it was a, a pretty thorough process we went through. It was very thorough. And am I correct? I don't think we went out to anybody. I think we were just unable to, we were sort of paralyzed in terms of being able to agree with the studio. And I don't think we went out to anybody detects fluctuations of human emotion. We have to be sure. Mary. Carrie. There's uh you may notice that the the technology in this movie, like the wristwatch that um, Christian wears and the, the lie detector here and various other uh, pieces of technology in the film. They're very deliberately um, sort of retro, um, which was a big debate that uh, Kurt and I had amongst each other. Uh, he, he had a very strong point of view that, you know, which we shouldn't try to, uh, I don't know, you know, over-technologize the film, um, that it really wasn't a science fiction in a way. It was a kind of a political fiction that we were making. And, uh, and by taking the emphasis off of that, I mean, the telephones are 40 years old in this movie. 
you know it, was, it saved us money too i mean we didn't have to build a lot of stuff that might have might or might not have worked it might have looked wonky uh, also you know even though 1984 written in 1949 was called 1984 and was ostensibly about the future it really wasn't about the future there was no quote-unquote people think of 1984 as science fiction but it's not because there is no science that makes the fiction possible it was really more of an alternate reality and this is the same way i, I didn't want to give the impression that this is our future because it's it's not our future this reality could not possibly happen much any more than the reality of Fahrenheit 451 could ever happen. It's a parable. It's a fairy tale. 1984 is slightly different because, you know, that was drawn from, um, you know, real events that uh, Orwell saw in, uh, occurring in England at that time. So, and that's one of the things that makes that story so chilling is that it does resonate more strongly than these, these sorts of tales. But in any case, yeah, I wanted to de-emphasize the technology because A, it would have cost money and B, it would have... Uh, sent the wrong message. You can kill father. This uh, is the outside of the Berlin Stadium. I think it's upstairs, actually. Yeah, there's an upstairs and a downstairs. This is, uh, yeah, you're right, this is upstairs. And we love these columns. We love these. Next shot's the best. Uh, we just absolutely love all this limestone. What's not to love? <laughs> it's going to be there long after this movie can't be found on the store shelves. It's true. You know, if you ever go to Germany, you have to take a detour to see this stadium. It is truly spectacular. Uh, it's one of the great monuments on Earth. Beautifully, beautifully designed. It's sunk into the Earth. And so it uh, has a really startling sense of vertigo when you walk into it because you think you're on level ground and suddenly it sinks like a sort of uh, Roman amphitheater into the Earth. Sir. The Nazis, uh, you know, as much as we associate them with uh, burning books and being adverse to art, they were actually, uh, you know, very artistic in terms Fairly of... cultured. Yeah, in terms of creating their own um, art ethic, and uh, they contributed a lot to design, a tremendous amount of to deco design, etc. It's curious that, that, that they were so focused on building these big edifices. They... The, Albert Speer, you know, and his uh, minions building these incredible buildings. Some of the buildings that we saw, you know, we cl clearly don't admire the Nazis, but some of the buildings that they built, it's just, it's amazing the, the, uh, the permanence that they have. You know, they're, they're not, there's no buildings like them anywhere else. No, that's right. That's why we, that's why we shot there. If you'll be so kind. You know, it, it occurred to me when I was making this film that essentially Hitler's Germany, Hitler's Nazi Germany, was essentially like Hitler's film. It was his fantasy film. and But he wasn't putting on celluloid. He was building his fantasy film in reality around him. And, you know, he had... You know, he had production designers, you know, as in Albert Speer, and he had his own DP, which was Lenny Riefenstahl, you know, and he had his own uh, composer, which is Richard Wagner. And, uh, you know, he, he drew from some very talented people, and, you know, he created, you know, he had a great costume designer. And uh, it's, it's kind of interesting when you think of it that way, because I think that, you know, in a very long way, he was making a big real-life movie. Of course I am. Cleric is the final line of defense. The uh, the hole in the back of the set that forms the T at times infuri <laughs> infuriated me because, um, of course, there's a green screen behind that, and um, every time we cut to that angle, um, we have to paint that 
<laughs> yeah, cha-ching. We have to paint that uh, that background out there. And Kurt, of course, uh, lied to me and promised me we would not cut. You know, we would not feature that uh, too often when I let him uh, essentially build that. And uh, and uh, of course, you know, in post production. Uh, we had to fill that in. Yeah. I and mean, in the last shot, you know, if the camera is moving, it becomes a 3D shot. Yeah. You know, usually this uh, that was the second shot of the day <laughs> on the first day. Also a very difficult, relatively difficult shot. Not incredibly difficult, but, you know, it, it's a boom down with a, uh, a focus pull and maybe a bit of a zoom on it too, zoom out. And uh, so that was the second thing that Dion had to perform. Yeah, I, I did a good job on that scene in the first scene with Christian. I'm not showing not showing that window too much, but you know. What are you doing? I was too tired to try <laughs> after that. So <laughs> I was yeah. checking to make sure you've been taking your interval. And are you satisfied? Truth be told, it, it drove Sue more crazy than it drove me, but it was just one of those things where I went, oh boy, I gotta have a secret bank account for that, those shots. Mm -hmm. Sue was the co-producer and she also line produced the film and she was sort of in charge of the money and, and stretching the dollars and uh, she's very good at it. This, uh, the background, the lighting in this scene um, actually is one of the few things that I, I sort of regret in the film. It's, it's, uh, it's kind of one of those things that's sort of like stylistic, but it doesn't, it's not based on... Right, it's not motivated it's by not anything. Motivated. And, you know, this is, this is where one of these things where Deanna and I both let it slip. You know, we said, we said to each other, let's differentiate this scene somehow. And so, you know, we came up with this concept, and but it's unmotivated by anything. Now, it's okay at the end of the day because nobody notices it. Um, but, you know, obviously we noticed it, and we, we continue to notice it. Uh, you know, it's just, it's just not perfect, and that's, that's the problem with it. But uh, live and learn. This set, by the way, which was, is all angles, it's a very tall set with lots of kind of, you know, trapezoids in it. Chimney-like. Um, was based on the Jewish Museum in Berlin that we went and saw, Kurt and I went to, and we were just like, wow, this is an amazing space. Right. And they had an incredible room, which was a, it was a memorial to, you know, uh, the victims of the Holocaust. And it was an incredible room. I mean, because, it, you know, it wasn't a statue, and it wasn't a painting or a mural. It was just a room. And you went into this room, and the walls were very thick concrete. It was extremely cold because the walls, heat they, they sucked up all the heat, and it was extremely quiet. I mean, it was, it was like the grave, literally. And then it was a very, very, very tall room, and at the top there was this little uh, of light, and it was like a chimney and uh, symbolic in that way. But it was very affecting and very moving, and uh, we thought that, you know, we would base... You know, not disrespectfully in any way, of course, but we would base the design of this room on something akin to that. It had a kind of a symmetry to it, these interrogations going on in that room. Yeah. These uh, sort of extras of the day that we've immortalized forever. <laughs> Can you? 
I want to say again, I said it before, I'll say again, William Fickner can act. He really was a gift. We were so happy with him. He's a lovely guy, but I mean, boy, he, when he just turned it on, he just dialed it right in and he was so, he had so much gravitas. Yeah, he, he just, he wanted to do a, a great job and uh, he was going to stop at nothing to do it. And that was he the case. He has humanity. With, he does, much like, uh, much like all the characters, interestingly, in this film. Well, particularly uh, Christian, Emily, Sean Bean, and uh, William. And they're the ones that are supposed to have the humanity, obviously. This, this is something we shot on the first day in, dig in uh, digitally. And this uh, set, the exterior set that uh, Christian is in, is the bicycling arena again. That's right. Just on the other side of that wall is the track. And uh, Wolf said, uh, this can be this. We'll just put this there. And sure enough, he's right. The, the set, and unfortunately, it's not featured in there. That uh, arena, that dome, had the most fabulous the ceiling. The ceiling was amazing. And, and I have it in another small scene that I took out. And I almost want to keep the scene in just to keep that ceiling in. It was uh, truly spectacular. I mean, it was, you know, it was... It it's was like a metal lattice work and, and uh, of like unbelievable intricacy. Right, and there's a quarter of a million dollars worth of production value just in that shot. And this is Alexis Summer. That red costume that she has on, uh, that also Emily wears uh, at a certain point coming up here, was so sumptuous. This costume was unbelievable that Joe made. It was like. I don't even know how to describe it. It was like dragon skin. Yeah, it was. It was an amazing fabric. And Joe is a fabric junkie. Uh, he loves this stuff. I wonder where that. So this is the this is the one of the money shots in this big room. This this subway. You can see the train tracks are back where the back wall, the horizon, the back wall disappears. Go ahead. And you can just see like the the scale of it. These tunnels, which are down the hall from where we just were, that set that we were just in which are basically unfinished um, train tunnels, uh, you know, for the death walk. We thought they were amazing, and uh, we put those lighting sconces in there up above, but basically it's, you know, the set came pre-built for us. Yeah, it's, it's just a tunnel. How did those Germans know we were coming? Yeah, I don't know. It's very considerate of them. This long run, we made Christian, uh, I think we were mad at Christian, we made him run this tunnel about ten times until <laughs> he was exhausted. Not to, yeah, not to make this sound like it's a love fest for Christian, but he's a great runner, he's very athletic. Which is surprising, once, once you've seen Metroland, he didn't look very, or Metro, he didn't look very athletic at all. Um, you know, it's funny, I, the, the, I don't even know where it went. I had a shot in there of the fire going out from over her shoulder. And it's not in the film anymore. But, uh, you know, we had this huge inferno going on in there. And uh, we had a stunt girl who had to stand in front of it. And she could only stand in front of it for about a second and a half before she had to get the hell out of there. And it was the same in the beginning when I burned the uh, Mona Lisa. Christian could only stand there in those flames for about as long as you see the shot. And then the next frame is him beating it the hell out of there. <laughs> By the way, uh, you know, part of the movie magic here, some of this stuff, this metal and concrete and whatever, is augmented by some fi very fine pieces of plywood. Uh, like that door that she's behind is, is would be way too heavy if it was made of metal. I'm sorry. And it's actually made of wood. Now, I'm sure Dimension won't mind me saying this, but in the shooting script, 
Emily is supposed to live. She's supposed to, you know, sort of a deus ex machina, come back at the end. And uh, Anna Lucas and I agreed that uh, that was not true to the script. Certainly true to a commercial ending, but not true to the story. And uh, so I, uh, we were in Berlin, and they were in New York, the studio. And so I made a uh, sort of command field decision, and I didn't shoot her coming back in the end. The point was that she was, that. she was the catalyst exactly. to activate him. It was not meant that they were going to have a romance that would go on into, uh, you know, the future. Uh, it, was, it was meant that she was the, the switch. She threw the switch on, on Preston, along with Partridge, Sean Bean. Right. Now, the question is, how well did she know DuPont? Cleric John Preston. Just let them think about that one for a <laughs> while. You are under arrest. This man, this senior cleric, has ceased the dose. He is feeling. He is the worm that has been eating... This is in the underground of the Potsdamer Platz. This is a, a different subway station. Right, they have great subways. That This one's actually f finished and working. I, I saw that ceiling in a uh, book of architecture, and it was one of the reasons why I wanted to go look at Berlin, was just to, having seen that ceiling. And it's, it's kind of interesting how, you know, you know, 12 or 13 months later, after having seen a picture in a book, you're shooting that, you're reproducing it on film. Of sense crime itself. Dispatch a search team to the cleric's quarters to search for unused prose. that won't be necessary, sir. If you'll run the trace record on his sidearm, you will find that it was he who was with the sweeper team when they were murdered. That's my first AD, Brian. Cleric, I assume you have something to say to me. I know. It's hard to believe. This is interesting, this is scene, among many other scenes. Uh, you know, I first cut this scene together. It, uh, it didn't work. I mean, it conveyed the information, but it didn't really work. And, you know, I tested it and sat there with the audience. And it didn't really have any impact. So I went back in with William and recut it. And, uh, you know, it's really extraordinary, the alchemy of, of editing and juxtaposing images. Um, we seriously recut the scene and then uh, played it for an audience, and they went nuts. They started applauding, and uh, it was an amazing lesson for me. And uh, William and I applied it to everything else in the film in terms of maximizing, you know, what we had to work with and squeezing every last bit of audience reaction out of it. It'll be better if you have it. He switched them. I think you have to be careful at some point not to be too calculating, particularly when you're shooting the footage, but... You know, it was one thing that Dimension appreciated about me slash us was that uh, I was one of those few directors that actually really liked to test films because, first of all, you know, they're giving me an audience. Every seat in the theater is full. I mean, how great is that? But, um, you know, to this day, uh, I think we tested this five times. To this day, I remember every testing and every nuance of the audience at every point and every frame of the film. And I paid close attention to it. And... You know, when they reacted to something, I tried to figure out how I could um, pump up that reaction. When they didn't react where I thought they should, I had to figure out, try and figure out what was wrong. 
And uh, it was a very valuable process. And Dimension actually really appreciated that because at the end of the day, they're a very bottom line studio. They're not making films for them. It's not about it's not a vanity exercise for them where it, basically they're only concerned that I listen to what they say. They want to make a movie that makes money that the audience is going to like. So at the end of the day, that was always the court of last resort. I could always say if there's a disagreement, well, let's test it. In fact, I think they, they got to the point where they wanted to stop taking my calls because they knew I was going to say, let's test it. I think you're 25000 or $30,000. You may be the only director that they've worked with who actually kind of took the process and, and applied it to them as yeah. opposed to them applying it to you. Yeah, actually, that's right. Every, every, yeah. you know, typically, the studio makes the director test the movie, and it's always a, a, a moment where uh, the producer and the director kind of gasp and like, oh, my God, what, what's going to happen and what changes are coming? If, this kangaroo court yeah, can't kang comment, comment on my film. Exactly, but we kind of took that and uh, said, oh, yeah, let's do it again. But you know, uh, for me, uh, I, this is, listen, I'm not David Lynch here. I'm not making, David Lynch shouldn't test his films. He's making movies for himself. And he does a brilliant job at it. Uh, this is a genre film I'm making for the audience. I really care what they have to say. And uh, very useful process, testing. I have to say, having said that, the focus groups are completely useless. They're a very strange animal that can be controlled or, or go out of control, and they can be very damaging. But sitting there in the dark and listening to that audience, the audience doesn't lie. You know, they forget you're there after two minutes, and uh, they are 100% honest about whether they like something or they don't. Yeah, you can literally just watch their heads. Mm -hmm. You can watch whether people get up to go to the bathroom or not, and you can pretty much tell when they're with a sequence or, or not. When they're shifting or they're paying rapt attention. And by the way, when they jump up and cheer, <laughs> you know, yeah. you're doing all right. And uh, I have to say, in, in this movie, they did it a lot. I mean, we were all amazed that pretty much after scene 75B, which is the scene where he saves a dog, um, you know, we had people regularly uh, laughing and clapping and cheering uh, it's a great feeling when the audience is it, with your movie and they're participating. Better. Nothing better. Matthew Harbour, scary little kid. Yeah. Great kid. Yeah. I he mentioned him on job. the other track. He, uh, he did a really good job, and, and I also said he was the one guy, the kid person that the studio made us hire, and they were right. It's done. There's the phone of the future. <laughs> I gave Kurt a, a big ration of you know what over this. I, I would give I tortured him about this green phone from the forties. This is uh, actually at a different airport. This this is a temple off. Set. This is temple off. Did you talk uh, a great deal about the white suit and uh, the origins of the white suit? Uh, no, I don't recall. What were the origins of the White Suit? Uh, Bruce Lee in the oh, Chinese yes, Connection. Oh, yes, of course. Absolutely. I completely forgot about that. Yeah. Uh, that's absolutely right. I pretty much stole this suit directly from there, but shh, don't tell people. He had another movie that I, okay, I ripped well, I off. I won't tell anybody. But, yeah, that was the first <laughs> thing I did uh, when I I met my jo my uh, costume designer, Joe Poro, as I sat him down and I threw in Chinese Connection, where at the beginning uh, Bruce is, goes to a funeral, and this is really... Zawo, morning suit, white morning suit, and it looked rocking on him, and I figured it looked rocking on Christian. The uh, studio was not too sure about it. Yeah, though, um, they were a little worried. One editorial comment just about the practical exigencies of production. Christian, through this last scene and this scene, was holding the sword tightly, gripping it tightly, and 
you know, people might infer that that's because uh, it was some acting thing and he's being intense and whatever. Actually, it was we couldn't get this uh, this sword to hang properly, and uh, we told him, listen, sorry, but you got to walk through this scene you know, holding on to it and keeping it in line because otherwise it's going to flop around. And it was, it was unsupported. The strap wasn't doing anything. It's just lying on his shoulder. So It yeah. turns out it's not that easy to make a, a sword, uh, you know, scabbard and, uh, and, and uh, sash. Uh, if there's some design that goes into them, apparently. Well, it was difficult because we did have problems with props in this film. And one of the, you know, many problems was that when the sword showed up on the day, I had said that I wanted it completely white, including the handle. And, of course, the handle wasn't white. So they had to paint it at that time, spray paint it, basically. Yeah, wow, right before we shot it. That's right. And so the paint kept coming off on Christian's gloves. Um, but, uh, you know, that's one of the fun things about making films is that things go wrong. And to me, it's like, uh, you know, it's like playing craps in Vegas, even though I'm not really a gambler, um, is that every setup, you're rolling the dice. And, you know, when they call roll film and action, you're holding your breath to see, you know, if it's going to come up sevens or something horrible is going to go wrong and you're going to get screwed. And it's a great feeling at the end of the day when, you know, you go home and maybe everything didn't go perfectly, but, you know, you said, you know, I got it. I know I have what I need. I can move on. And, uh, and it looks nice. Actually, you know, part of the filmmaking process is, like, just learning how to, how to vamp, learning how to, like, take what you're given, and sometimes, you know, you're not dealt the best hand, and things break, and people don't perform the way they're supposed to, and whatever, and you just vamp. You just find a way to, f to make it work, and, you know, you do it in that moment, and that's, that's kind of the height of creativity, actually, for, for us, you know, yeah, or anybody. Sometimes it turns out better than you expected. I have to say, I, I don't much like vamping, because I, I like it to, you know, to have the answers ahead of time. Um, I don't relish, you know, going into situations like that. Sometimes, and especially in a genre film, because in a genre film like this, you know, the frame is very important because in a way they're comic books. And so, you know, everything is sort of relegated in a way around the frame and the performance within it. But if you're doing a drama, you know, then, uh, you know, you may want it to, you know, just have them extemporize on every scene. And, uh, you know, you just have to follow them with the camera. It's a scary no-net process. Uh, yeah, the no-net is a big deal. You just don't know. Sometimes you just try things and they don't work, and you just try them again until you get it right. But the actors on this film were very good about understanding that it was a genre film and, and that, you know, the frame is going to be here and we're going to go here and do this on this line, etc. Those weeble wobbles we were thinking about way before we... Uh, yeah, that was another one of those things, you know, I had this idea, and I'm like, uh, you know, you, you never know, is this going to work or not? Because, you know, when you're telling people in a room, <laughs> it sounds kind of silly. Nobody thought it would work. Nobody. Nobody thought those we were well Well, one person did. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, actually, it works really well. Uh, you know, it, it's sort of just about uh, keeping in, in this sort of uh, fiction of the film. You know, it wouldn't work at all if this were a lethal weapon film. But it works in this film. <laughs> He's kicking some ass here. <laughs> I mean, I don't like it. Yeah, no, we're, we're against that. The rifle thing is... Uh 
is pretty cool. Excessive. Oh yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's yeah a beautiful the, it's, gun. It's over the top. I mean, not a beautiful just in terms of design. I'm not sure it was what it's capable of doing. So the palace that I wanted to shoot in, you know, which we weren't allowed to shoot in, would have looked something like this. I think Wolf actually modeled this room after uh, one of Frederick's yeah, palaces. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's not as sumptuous as I, I would have liked, but. Uh, you know, I was pretty down on it, actually, at the time. I was pretty depressed about it. But uh, at the end of the day, it does its job. And it's kind of funny because I look at the sea now, and then I look at the teaser for The Matrix, and it's it's interesting. Um, you know, it, there are people who said that, you know, this film took the costumes from The Matrix. I don't see that at all. You know, they're, uh, they weren't wearing... You know, Chris or Neo wasn't wearing Prada in it at all. But it's interesting when I see the teasers for Reloaded, the costumes are very similar to this. And I'm sure the motivation was the same that, uh, you know, that Neo is uh, assuming theological, um, godlike proportions. And so that's why he has sort of a semi religious tone to his, his outfits. But also, there's, you know, the set in the teaser where he's fighting is actually quite similar to this sort of. Uh, 19th century semi semi classical. Mind the uniform, cleric. We taught all of these guys, um, Tay and Christian uh, and Angus, everything they needed to know to work on this, you know, to do the martial arts and sword fighting in these movies. In not much time, too, I might yeah, add, that they were, they were all very uh, good at absorbing the choreography. I have to say, Jim Vickers did a pretty amazing job. Just he certainly did, given what he had to work with. Uh, one interesting thing about the scene was I was losing Tay at that lunch, and I had to shoot him out of this whole scene from Christian's entrance to the end. So I had to very quickly figure out how I could shoot around the fact that Tay wasn't there and get the stuff that I needed to get that had to have Tay in it. Uh, it was pretty. It was pretty difficult and pushing it. But uh, that's filmmaking. This, uh, I, I know in the other commentary you were talking a little bit about this. We, this was a much more elaborate sequence that we literally just ran out of time to, uh, to execute. We wanted to do something pretty spectacular uh, in here. Which we'll save for another movie. Which, we, which I'm not allowed to talk about because you'll see it in another one of our films. But uh, it was pretty cool what we were going to do. And we just literally, it was just a time and money thing. Yeah, and we could it, not finish it. I just can't, you know, there were a lot of people said, well, we'll do just the truncated version. I ultimately said, no, we just won't do it. And um, people were pretty disappointed, particularly the, uh, you know, fight coordinators who were really into it. And uh, I appreciate that. But um, at the end of the day, though, uh, people talk about this scene a lot. Yeah, because it's, I think it's, if I'm not mistaken, or I certainly seen it, it's the first time it's been done on film. And it, it seems so obvious, you know, hand trapping with guns, but nobody's ever done it. And uh, I'm glad that we Americans are the ones who were able to invent this. I pay it gladly. I don't think we ever talked about it. You and I never talked about it, but... Um... You know the blood that ends up on his neck in the next, uh, in the next yeah. scene. 
Um, it sort of seems like a scene was cut out between the two, but it, it actually isn't the case. No, it wasn't the case. Uh, you know, if I could have gone back, I would have uh, shot a quick shot of him sustaining that bullet graze in his neck during that last fight. But what it really happened was that uh, Christian said to me after we'd shot all that and before we shot this, so shouldn't I have some blood on my neck? You know, it might not make sense. And, um, you know, I decided he was right. And I, I thought, you know, the audience will certainly extrapolate. He was just in a gunfight. It wouldn't be too hard to buy that uh, he has blood on his neck. Um, a lot of people did say, well, did say where he... There are some things that you have to include and some things that the audience will just fill in. That was one that, you know, a lot of people needed fill, filling in. We had various designs for that room that we uh, ultimately... You just like that thing where he crosses his arms and shoots the screens as, as he walks by? Well, you know, it doesn't work. I mean, it's, it's a combination of a lot of considerations. Uh, utility and shooting being one of them in terms of being able to cover it easily and, uh, you know, overall design. I'm not that happy with it at the end of the day, but uh, it serves its purpose. There's that cute dog. Yeah. That shot was not originally in my original cut of the film, but so many people asked on the cards, what happened to the dog? Well, I had to answer that question. This is uh, Italy, right? Yeah. And what I, you know, one thing I do, you might notice, is that uh, there are no blood squibs. I used all powder, you know, uh, basically a black dust in all of the squib hits in the movie. And the reason was, was uh, I didn't want to cut any of the action. And I was uh, concerned at the MPAA, they re they, they're like bulls and they react to the sight of red. And so I didn't, uh, I felt like all the audience really needed was the visual visceral impact. And that would be enough, I think it was. And there it is. And there are the titles. That's right. Wow, that went by fast. It did. Sue did a great job. Thank you, Sue. Sue, Sue Baden-Powell. And there's uh, Andrew Rona, who, uh, you know, walked point on this film for us, and Bob, who was kind enough to pay for it, and Danone, who was also my post-production supervisor, who did a great job and supported me, and Dion, who I'm already flattered enough. <laughs> I think Wolf, and Wolf, who's a little cranky, but, but unbelievably talented. Right. You know, one thing I should say about Wolf is he's, uh, and there's William, William is that he's about 65 years old and he works harder than anybody else. It's like he's got the hounds of hell pursuing him uh, to leave his legacy on this earth. It's quite something. Wolf was always in the office on Saturday and sometimes on Sunday he just... He was uh, <laughs> hard at work. You know, he, he must have walked off the film. Uh, at, not, least, uh, at least three times. Yeah, at least three times. And I would go run after him and beg him to stay. And then he was a, he's a master at sort of manipulating the system. And it, what his end goal is is to get as much money out of the production as possible to build the, the biggest, world. The biggest sets That's right, he the possibly biggest sets can. And, and the world. He will give you his soul the to make them good. But The casting directors, we have to mention, they yes. really served us pretty well. Uh, especially Lucinda Sison. Yeah, that's right, especially uh, London casting.
And there's Digital Firepower, who uh, did a lot for very cheap. The explosions at the end, you know, they're, they're not the best explosions by any sense that you've seen on film. Uh, it could have spent another, I think it was three or $450,000 to make them good explosions. But at the end of the day, it didn't propel the story forward. And uh, I thought the money was much better spent, you know, elsewhere on the characters. Dominic Purcell, who's now on a big television series. That's right. I spoke about that on the other track, the irony of they wouldn't hire him at the time. Oh, man, but, they killed us on that. But, but now <laughs> they would hire him in a flat second. I'll bet you. Hey, the rebel victim, Florian Pitts, all these uh, familiar names, all of our... Uh, Mehmet uh, Kurtilis, there he is. That's right. Uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's an inside joke for Kurt and I. Right, and that's... Uh, Annette Borgman did our uh, German... Uh, casting. And she and was great. She was great. She did a great job. She helped us a lot. Andrew, the second uh, second assistant director who really kicked butt. That's right. And Jim Glander, who helped us a lot at Miramax, who was uh, mm -hmm. their production executive, physical production executive. That's right. Pam Alch, who was my script supervisor. Script supervisor. Eric Olson, who um, uh, did a lot of work, too, in finishing some of these sets. Paul Hayes, that guy saved us. Yeah, he was. Uh, that he, guy was a secret weapon. That's true. He, he built all the sets. That's right. He was in charge of building it on a, at a fair price, and uh, he did a great job. It was amazing what he was. He's you know, he's a, a journeyman British builder. From we London. brought him in as a foreman, and we promoted him to a coordinator. And boy, he took care of us. He certainly did. And uh, Jack and Victor. Yeah, the accountants. accountants. Something very important on a movie. I like people who pay me, always. Fariha van Rauch was our location scout. Man, was she tireless. She was a real uh, queen, too, you know. She was very regal. You know, you, she has a regal name, and she was regal, too. Her location photos were literally, like, works of art. She presented them in these books that were, like, the, the care which, which with, with which they were prepared. Absolutely. Very thorough. Michael Lindsay, on set props, saved my ass many times. Steve Flick. Yeah, I didn't recognize his name was Stephen <laughs> Stephen Hunter Flick, but yeah, Steve Steve has uh, got a guy. He's got an Oscar or two on his shelves. Uh, very very talented guy. Very enthusiastic about the movie and doing his best. And had a lot of people like that. And he was just one of them. Post production sound. He was a post production sound. Right. That's right. Mixer and sound editor. I had a, the effects on the film were done by a number of studios like PostLogic and Riot and Digital Firepower. It's tricky business with these uh, visual effects because you kind of lose uh, some of the control. There's my brother, John yeah. Wimmer, who was in Sandy Hastings. Who was in Mark Martin? We cannot, we cannot uh, overlook Mark Martin. Who he was just a production assistant, but you'd be amazed at the proportions. We used, we used him for everything. That's right. That these characters. He spoke can, several languages. That's right, and, and uh, you know he became much more than that for us. Harvey Harrison and Ian. That's Cameron right, and his crack team. And uh, for the second unit. That's right. They came in. They were basically an English killing squad. They came in and you know and killed. They did their job. Uh, the Italian crew, Enzo and Luca and Vito, thank you. And Amazing how many people we had on this movie. God. Yes. 
It's interesting. Did I pay you, for all of these people? <laughs> I think so. It's really? interesting, you know, when you sit down in your Why? in your in your office and you you have a blank page and a blank screen and you start to type, uh, not really stopping to think that, you know, a year or two years down the line, you're going to be employing a lot of people and paying their rent for a certain amount of time. I mean, a lot of people, and uh, it's kind of a good feeling. Interestingly enough, Andrea Verthheim. Yeah, she helped us a lot. Yeah, a lot of support in there. And these are all the places we shot the Deutschland Hollow. Walter Bell, they were, uh, they were renovating the Olympic Stadium. Very expensive renovations, extensive negotiations, which Lucas handled, obviously, uh, in terms of get us in there. securing that place. Very tight window. Glad we got it. So there we go. That's our film. Uh, it'll be up to posterity to see whether it was worth it. Hey, thanks for listening. Right on.